Hello and welcome to another edition of Atlantic and Coastal, the Athletics ACC podcast. I am Andy Bitter, your Virginia Tech football beat writer and host of Atlantic and Coastal. We've made it. We've reached the ACC title game. It is not the one that anyone would have thought at the beginning of the year, and that's okay. Wake Forest versus Pitt. This is not the names you'd expect in this game, but this could be a very, very fun matchup. You look at the offenses on both sides of the ball in this one. You look at some new blood in the ACC title game. You look at possibly a competitive matchup where it seems like each of the last six years you're turning the game off in the middle of the second quarter because Clemson is running away with it. I think this could be a very fun matchup uh, to watch this weekend. Here's what we're going to do this today on Atlantic and Coastal. We're going to talk to Roddy Jones of ESPN and the ACC Network. He's going to break down the ACC title game. We'll wrap up some crazy finishes in the final week of the regular season in the ACC as well. There were a couple games there, uh, UNC, NC State, UVA, Virginia Tech, that you sort of had to watch them again to believe how those games ended. Uh, pretty crazy endings to both of them. Then I'm going to bring on Audrey Snyder. She's our Penn State beat writer. We're going to talk a little bit about Virginia Tech's new hire, Brent Pry. He was the Nittany Lions' defensive coordinator, also was a GA back in the day at Virginia Tech. So this makes a little bit of sense for the Hokies uh, making this hire, dipping into their past, uh, finding somebody who's sort of made of that Virginia Tech DNA a little bit. Uh, Audrey gave us some great insight uh, into what Hokies fans can expect with this new hire. All right, joining us now is Roddy Jones, ESPN and ACC Network analyst. You see him all over your television set all of the time. Roddy, you're always on TV. I, I turn on TV, you're always on there doing a game. I feel like you're in my life all the time. Uh, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Um, but thanks for having me on. It's going to be a little bit less now, obviously, with the ACC season being on. But, I, you know, I have um, I've had to apologize to a lot of ACC fans. Obviously, I've got the, the game with Wes every week. But towards the end of the year, like it was an ACC game on Thursday and then on Saturday. Uh, so most ACC people got a double dose. And uh, for that, I apologize. Well, you, you have certainly seen these teams quite a bit. We're talking about yeah. the ACC championship game here, Wake Forest versus Pitt. Uh, this is not probably the marketing dream that people in the ACC offices had or wanted for this week, but this is a ridiculously fun matchup uh, between two really good offenses and two you know, programs that are eager to be in this game. How, how excited or eager are you to see this one play out? I am very excited. And while like nationally people, I, people want to act like they're not like sort of snickering. Oh, you guys, you guys got Wake Forest and Pitt in the championship game. Uh, I, I think to some extent they, they kind of are, but this is one of the most exciting ACC championship games that we've had in a while. I mean, you, you look at, at how even these teams are. I was looking at it yesterday. Obviously, last year's was was sort of separate. I'm talking about ACC championship game, traditional Atlantic Coastal. But a couple of years ago, like Clemson, Virginia, that was a top 25 matchup, both teams in the top 25. But no one in their right mind thought Virginia had a chance in that. Same thing with the year before with Clemson and Pitt. Same thing with the year before with Clemson and a Miami team that was reeling at that point in time. Uh, maybe you go back to 16 when Virginia Tech was pretty good and they played. That was Clemson. a good game too. That, that was went right a good down game. to the wire. Right. That in was Orlando that year. Yep. So so like maybe, maybe that's the one that you look at as the one that coming in, we're like, huh, this was a Clemson team that up until that point hadn't looked had looked really good. We knew they were really good, but hadn't always played to their best. And Virginia Tech was playing well and it was a great game. But since then, I don't remember being as excited about the matchup on the football field as this one. Yeah, it seems like the last couple of years, and I covered that Virginia game a couple of years ago, uh, drove down to Charlotte to do it. I mean, you're turning the television off in the second quarter because it's already a 30-point game. I mean, the, right. the outcome is decided. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think this is good for the league that this could be a potentially good game. And I, I think it's good for the league that there's some new blood in this game. I mean, both yeah. these teams are making their second appearance in this game. Wake Forest, his first one, hasn't been there since 2006 when it beat Georgia Tech to win the ACC. Uh, Pitt, first time since 2018, a 42-10 to 10 loss to Clemson in that one, so I'm sure they'd like to come back for it. But uh, I know big picture, as the ACC, you go, hey, you want to have that 
you know, top dog team. You want to have that playoff team get in there, get a little bit of extra money from the playoff for that. Yeah. But uh, this has to be good for the league just to have some new teams in this and, and a more competitive game, perhaps. Yeah, everybody wants to be the SEC where the winner gets in. Like it is, it doesn't matter who wins, they're getting in. As a matter of fact, if there's an upset, two teams get in. Being in the position that the ACC has been in, you are excited to have the top team, but you are hoping, it's deep down inside, ACC fans and probably the conference too, you are hoping that everything just stays like it is. Like, all right, with when it's Clemson and somebody else, let's just hope Clemson wins. Last year, obviously, was different because the Clemson win meant two teams get, got in, which is good for the league. But normally, like the ones that we talked about, like you were hoping the favorite won because that was your entrance into the, into the college ball playoff. If you're not going to have that, if you don't have that team that's going, then you want a great matchup. And it's kind of the world the Pac-12 has been living in for a few years. So welcome, ACC fans. But but this is, it, it's, it's got the potential to be high scoring, although I've got my, my doubts about that, which I'm sure we'll talk about. It's got a first round, potentially top 10 picket quarterback. It's got one of the best coaches, one of the best coaching stories in the conference in Wake Forest. And another quarterback who's kind of under the radar, two unique-ish offenses, um, and, and, uh, and two very cool programs. Like if you're just around Pitt and Wake Forest, very distinct personalities of those programs, very distinct personalities of the coaches. And I think that makes for good TV. Well, Pitt is a three point favorite in this game. The over under is set at 72 and a half. Yeah. So Vegas sees a shootout in this game. That could be very fun. I was looking at the other power five title games. Uh, these are some of the over-unders in the other Power 5 title games. Bama, Georgia is 49 and a half. Wow. Baylor, Oklahoma State is 46 and a half. And Iowa, Michigan is 43 and a half. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so the, the ACC is about to set football back like 20 years. Right. I mean, like, the, the ACC has a chance to be really fun. Like, come watch the ACC game. You will enjoy yourself. I feel like. Shook Knight at the 95 Source Awards here. Like, come come over and watch ACC. This is great football. You could have a, a fun time watching that. You don't want to watch this rock fight between the other programs here. This could be a really fun game. And you can even go to the American Championship game. I don't know what the over-under is in that one, but Houston plays great defense. And Cincinnati's obviously going to play defense. Like, that's going to be a physical game. And I, I think it's first to 30 wins that game if anyone gets to 30. So when you compare it to the other big-time championship games, I mean, go out west with Utah and Oregon. Utah just, like, just waxed Oregon in a game that I believe Oregon scored, like, three points or ten points, and that was an absolute demolition in Salt Lake City. Um, so in terms of, in terms of like, sellability, I, I'll be on the corner there with you, like, with the bullhorn saying, come it's going to be lots of fun. All right, the QB matchup in this game, I, I got to start there because it's so intriguing. Uh, Kenny Pickett, your ACC player of the year, Sam Hartman, second team uh, quarterback in the ACC. There were like 12 or, or, or like eight quarterbacks in the ACC that could have made the all ACC team. And these How hard the was that for you to vote? Oh, for? it was tough. I went uh, Pickett, Hartman, and I went Brennan Armstrong. That's what I went And then to. I'm looking but at the guys, was... that, the guys I left off is like Devin Leary and Cunningham and Sam Howell. I'm like, yep. any normal year, they would have been up there, but you just had to leave some out. It was impossible. Tyler Van Dyke. Like at the end of the day, I'm looking and I'm like, wow, I didn't even think about putting Tyler Van Dyke on my ballot. But in the second half of the season, you can make the argument that he's like the third best quarterback. Insane. Well, those two, Pickett and Hartman, combined for 74 touchdown passes, 7,777 yards. Uh, a lot of sevens oh, yeah, in those numbers there. Uh, you know, just as a football guy, how much do you enjoy watching these two play? And, and not just play, but like these are guys that have blossomed over their career and turned into these players that weren't, they weren't like this as, as freshmen, they developed into this and became these incredible players by the time they're upperclassmen. It's been a lot of fun and I'll take them individually. I'll start with Kenny Pickett. I feel like I haven't counted, but I feel like I've done, and this is not an exaggeration, 15 to 20 of Kenny's games over the course of his career. Some of that is the fact that he has been here for five years and we've seen him a lot. Some of that is is just how the schedules worked out with us getting a lot of pit games just about every single year of his career. And I remember him as a freshman coming in and starting. Uh, you know, there was the 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 ground beneath him always seemed like it was a little unstable. Like he was he was obviously a playmaker and, and made some throws, and you could see the talent, but to see him mature and then especially having a bunch of their games the last two seasons 
seeing him last year, how well he was playing, the toughness of dealing with the ankle injury, coming back and, and gutting through that. And then this year, really turning into an NFL quarterback. I mean, the way he manages himself, the way he manages the team, the way he includes his teammates, obviously his play on the has just been really fun. And, and I've said it multiple times, like, it seems like he's now Keanu Reeves at the end when he realizes he's the one and he's seeing the matrix, like everything's happening slow. He sees the bullets coming and he's stopping them with his hand before he goes out and throws it to, to Jordan Addison or Jared Wayne or, or Lucas Kroll. So his leadership has been fun to see. And then on the opposite side, Sam Hartman's story. I mean, this is a guy that started his true freshman year, was benched due to injury at first and then beat out by Jamie Newman. So because of injury, lost a starting job, got beat out the next year, had to sit and wait. Newman transfers in the past two seasons. He sort of carries an offense that was inexperienced around him last year. This year, all of those guys kind of came into their own at the same time. Uh, and then he's got to manage. He's got to manage getting the ball to all of these really good, but but very competitive receivers. And that's the thing that stands out to me about Wake at receiver. They're very competitive. Jaquari Roberson wants the football. A.T. Perry wants the football. Taylor Morin wants the football. And Sam Hartman does a good job of managing the tenor, the tone, the temperament of that offense, and also dishing the ball. So I, I like their styles. They're different style quarterbacks, both of them with a little bit of mobility. Uh, Kenny with a little bit more, both of them with incredible accuracy. Kenny's obviously got more arm strength and, and throws a little bit better deep ball, in my opinion. But uh, overall, they are two really, really good quarterbacks. It'll be a good showcase. Who do you give the edge to offensively? In this game, I mean, you mentioned the the receivers there for Wake Forest and, and Robertson and Perry. Jordan Addison's probably going to win the Bolitnikoff Award yeah. uh, as a voter on it's that, and somebody who they send me a message every three minutes about getting my vote in. I'm looking what at does the that stat. Vote do? Uh, I think it's after this weekend's game, okay. so they, they just like chill Bolitnikoff Award. Right. Get, I'll vote on it after this weekend's games. Uh, Jordan Addison, pretty good. Lucas Kroll, uh, at tight end, obviously a big weapon there. Uh, is there an edge for either side you think offensively in this game? I actually don't. Uh, I think in order to find the edges, you have to flip to the matchups against the defenses. Uh, these two teams were the top two scoring teams in the ACC and, and two of the top scoring teams in the entire conference. I mean, entire country. When you look at scoring offense, Wake Forest ended up third, Pitt ended up fourth, separated by one point in terms of scoring in the regular season, Wake Forest 515 points and Pitt for 514 points. So, so offensively, I don't, I don't really have a strong lean because of the differences in style. And, and if you were to hold my feet to the fire and ask me which offense I would take, I would probably take Pitts over Wake Forest just because I think at the top end, they have a little bit more talent. They're more talented at running back. They're more talented at the top end at wide receiver. They're more talented at the top end at quarterback. Um, so, so overall, the way the offenses operate, uh, I, I don't have a strong lean, but talent-wise, Pitt certainly has the edge at just about every position, so you'd have to take them. Let's flip over to the defensive side. I thought it was something interesting you said earlier on this. And you go, Everybody's kind of expecting a high-scoring game, and you maybe don't think that will be the case. Do you think these defenses – uh, will stand tall a little bit in this game? Or do you imagine this being a, a game where both offenses, like, we need to control this and not put our defense out there and expose them too much? Yeah, uh, the, this kind of reminds me of the the game that against, uh, or the game that Pitt played against North Carolina, where everyone was coming in expecting that one to be a really high-scoring game, and it wasn't. And it's mainly because, and, and I didn't think that one was going to be quite as high-scoring as everybody thought, because Pitt plays pretty good defense. And, and that to me is sort of the is sort of the the um, the thing that that could swing this pit's way uh, and, and could could mess up and overbet it because in long stretches, really outside of first quarters, consistently pit's been pretty good. They're pretty they're they're really good up front with Haba Baldonado, Deslin Alexander, Dayon Hayes, uh, and and then in the middle, Kalaji Kansi. So that crew, I think, is going to be able to have some success against Wake Forest. If I'm Wake, that's the thing that's me the most is blocking, especially the guys on the edge, because Clemson had a lot of success uh, with with those guys on the edge against the Wake Forest tackles. And I'm not saying Habba Baldonado is Miles Murphy, and I'm not saying Deslin Alexander is Xavier Thomas. They're not or, or KJ Henry or any of those guys, but they're like the next best thing that the Ace offer outside of Jermaine Johnson. So. 
these guys are really good. I think they'll be able to have some success. And then if you dedicate extra resources out there, then you're going to have to worry about Kalaja Kansi up the middle. And Pitt's going to challenge Wake Forest in a way that 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 we haven't seen Wake Forest respond especially well. It seemed like for the better half of the last part of the season, people have decided to go man-free against Wake Forest a lot. You look at NC State, Clemson, um, and, and, and even North Carolina some. And, and Wake Forest's answer to that has been, all right, let's throw a fade to A.T. Perry. Let's get a drag route to A.T. Perry coming across the field. And it hasn't worked consistently enough for me to feel like they're going to hit pit all the time. So, so that's why I think this could be a game that ends up somewhere in the thirties instead of a game that ends up well into the forties. Well, you look at that pit defense, 46 sacks this year, uh, led the league second nationally, uh, that that's Pat Narducci. They commit to beating yeah. you in the trenches. They're going to commit to stopping the run. And, uh, I look back at that Clemson game and wakes got that slow mesh and Clemson really blew that thing up throughout that whole game, which is pressure. I mean, they, they beat blocks and they got in there and they were blowing that up before they could really affect you too much. I'm curious to see if Pitt can hold up in this kind of RPO off heavy offense, uh, you know, messing that up and forcing wake to have to go to the air. And I mean, but they do have the receivers that can make some plays out there at the same time. Uh, so I'd be interested to see how that whole thing plays out. I completely agree. Um, I, I think the one thing that Pitt is going to do, just knowing the personality of their defense a little bit, uh, I think they are going to play aggressive. They're not a defense. Like, there's a lot of that teach their linebackers against the slow mesh, play it slow. Like, you're going to slowly approach the line of scrimmage, sort of make the read muddy for Sam for Sam Hartman, and then it, when when he hands it off and the running back decides, then you go. That goes against everything that Pitt is defensively. Like telling their linebackers to play slow is not what they do. So I think they're going to do the opposite. I think they're going to play aggressive. They're going to say, hey, look, you got this gap and on that slow mesh, this is your gap. You be there and you go, you trigger. We'll leave it to our guys on the back end to deal with it, which I which is going to cause Wake Forest. Uh, I think their answer to that is not going with the RPO and then the shots because you'll see Wake Forest condense the formation, bring those receivers in tight go with an RPO and then take a shot over the top with a safety. I don't think they're going to have time to do that against Pitt. So the answer to me is they go wide and it's going to be more of those glance routes, those skinny posts behind the linebackers that they're pulling and throwing, which means Jaquai Roberson and, and A.T. Perry um, are, are going to have to do more after the catch than they've done in other games. So it's going to be fascinating. There are shots to be hit against Pitt safeties. That's the key. You know, they're, they're, they're uh, corners. They'll get beat, but, like, they hold up pretty well. But the safeties, if you can get them in space, I think there's some shots to be hit. The problem is you rarely have time to hit those shots against Pitt. Well, what do we think about Wake Forest defense? Because this is a, a defense that has given up a lot of points this year. Uh, one opponent in the last four games, they held under 40 points. That opponent happened to be last week at Boston College. Uh, held them to 10 points. Uh, BC couldn't do much of anything. Now, I, I think I read that a bunch of players had the flu this week for BC, so I don't know how much that factors in. But uh, Dracovic was three for 11 for 19 yards yeah. passing, two interceptions. BC ran for 163, had 182 yards of offense. Uh, is that something these Deacons can hang their hat on defensively? I mean, it, I mean, they played one of their best games defensively in the, the game right before the ACC championship. Uh, I, I don't expect them to do that against Pitt. But can they give more of a fight here than maybe we expect them to? You would hope with some of the confidence that they gained a week ago. Um, some of that was was Boston. A lot of that was Boston College. I mean, Phil Dracovic had not looked the same throwing the ball since he came back from his injury. And like he injured his hand and he, he couldn't throw for for weeks and back and the deep ball isn't there. Well, it, it's not a it's not a hard, you know, a leap of faith to guess dude could barely grip a football i'm sure after having his hand in some sort of of restraint for for i think six weeks he was out so it's no surprise that he couldn't throw the deep ball and he couldn't there was wind there was there was and, and then and then you factor in the coming back from the injury and he hadn't looked the same and and all of that that being said wake forest did play well and rondell bothroyd is playing a lot better i think luke masterson has played pretty well the entire year yeah they've given up a ton of yardage especially on the ground I mean, you're talking about in the second half of the year, Syracuse goes over 300 yards. Army goes over 300 yards. North Carolina, 300 yards. Clemson over 300 yards on the ground. The thing that's good for them in this game is Pitt doesn't really want to run the ball. They want the ball in Kenny Pickett's hands. So that's sort of an interesting thing to watch for me. How much does Pitt want to run the football in this game? 
because that seems to be the recipe to really get after this Wake defense is running the football. They've held up pretty well against the pass other than in a few spots. I think some of that is like path of least resistance for some of these schools. Um, but it's not in Pitt's personality to say, all right, we're going to go 60-40 run to pass in this one. Uh, they're going to throw the ball. They want the ball in Kenny Pickett's hands. Um, so I, I think Wake's going to have to live more in the, hey, let's bend break. Let's create turnovers and get the ball some extra pos- or get our offense some extra possessions. It not wanting to run the ball just does not seem right to me. Like that is just not their personality over the years. And it's just like it, it's very strange to be in this whole thing. Talking through this game with you, it, it sounds like you would be leaning pit in this one. Pitt's yeah. a three point favorite. Are we, are, would you pick pit in a prediction? I, I would. And, and I'd take pit to cover as well. Um, not that I don't think highly of what Wake Forest has done this season, but I think there's a few things that they've struggled with really throughout the year that are going to pop up in this game. Um, for them on defense, Pitt moves Jordan Addison around a lot. They can create matchups with them, and there are some weaknesses, uh, some glaring weaknesses in that Wake Forest secondary that I think Pitt's going to be able to take advantage of with Jordan Addison, with Lucas Kroll, with Gavin Bartholomew, who has been a fantastic freshman tight end. Like, he's going to be a star. Uh, with Jared Wayne, Mark Whipple's done a really nice job. They go with tempo. They do some um, some some tackle over stuff, which makes it difficult for you. And, and I think they kept a lot in their bag the last few weeks once they kind of figured that they were going to wrap up the Coastal Division. And then you flip over to the defensive side of the ball. We talked about the front of Pitt. I think they're going to be able to give Wake Forest enough issues. Now, Wake Forest is going to move the ball. They're going to make their plays. It's not going to be a repeat of Clemson, but I think it could be similar to what happened against Clemson at least up front, Wake Forest hasn't been overly productive in the traditional drop back pass game. People have started to figure out because of Sam Howell's, I to keep going Sam Howell, because of Sam Hartman's drops, you can bat balls down. He doesn't drop very deep behind the line of scrimmage. Guys are getting their hands up, batting balls down. That really started to happen in the North Carolina game, but, but NC State got after him that way. Clemson got after him that way. Um, and, and so when I think when you factor all of that stuff in, I give the edge to Pitt uh, unless Wake Forest is able to create uh, a decent amount of turnover. They, I think they'd have to win the turnover battle by a couple. Yeah, I think I'm with you with the Panthers. Give me them 35-30. I think I'm with you on the like over-under, too. It's a really like that. That's a really big number, yeah. 72 and a half. That's tough to get to, so I, I don't know if they get there. I like that score, too, Andy. Like uh, I think It's a football you know, score, 35-30, 38-31, 38-28. Like, that's kind of what I'm feeling, like that range. Now that, I, now that I've said that, it has no shot of actually happening. Of course, none of them do. It's going to be 50 to 52 or something like that. Well, shifting gears here uh, while I have you, there were a couple crazy results last week in the ACC. Wild finishes uh, to this thing. I'm talking about the NC State-UNC game. I'm talking about Virginia Tech-Virginia. I just want to hit them both here real quick uh, before I let you go here. NC yeah. State beats UNC 34 to 30. The Wolfpack were down 30 to 21 with two minutes and 12 seconds left. After UNC yeah. hits a long field goal, they're all celebrating on the sidelines. Uh, I am counting my money because I had UNC on a money line. I'm like, this Not one's over. Cash that right there. Uh, not so fast, as Lee Corso would say. I, I checked the, the the win probability thing afterwards. It was like 99.9%. You are and correct. sometimes I think those things are wrong on ESPN. I'm like, I, it can't be that high. This one felt that high. This one felt over. And sure enough, NC State scores two touchdowns in basically 26 seconds yep. with an onside kick in between. Emeka Mezzi, uh, huge touchdown catches going up over the UNC defense that I don't even know what the Tar Heels were doing there. That was a ridiculous finish. Are you more in awe of the comeback or more in awe of the collapse? Um, the collapse. Uh, I, I, and look, if you, if you go all in on the collapse on the broadcast, it doesn't like that doesn't play well. Uh, but since then, like Carolina had to help in, in multiple ways. And here's, here's why they always say football is the ultimate team game. Really, it's, it's, it's like one guy that blows two coverages on those touchdowns. It's one guy on the onside kick that doesn't, that isn't aggressive to the ball or pulls off or whatever reason decides not to try and field the ball on the onside kick that, that costs Carolina. So really it's three plays made by two individuals, but, but on three separate instances that cost you the game. Um, now it, it helped on that final drive for NC state that, that they got a, 
fairly friendly, in my opinion, roughing the passer call. The pass interference, there was no doubt about that. Yeah. But ultimately, like, you have to at least knock the ball down. And the ball at the end of Emeka Mezzi, I'm convinced, like, that ball should be intercepted. But Emeka Mezzi comes up with it. You get a bad angle by the safety, and, and NC State wins. So I credit NC State. I credit Dave Doran, too, for being aggressive in that moment. Because you go back and watch it, after that pass interference call, I say right before they snap the ball, they, they, need to, they should run the ball here. And I thought that you take control of the clock, number one, because this has been a crazy football game. And, and North Carolina ended up throwing the ball in the end zone to win it, by the way. Like, they had a bunch of time left after this comeback. <laughs> right, because it was almost too fast, right. which is why I thought, all right, run the ball. Like, you're in field goal range, run the ball, take control of the clock, make sure UNC has no time, and they don't have an opportunity to throw it in the end zone for, for, to win the game. But Dave Doran believed and told Tim Beck, hey, look, Devin Leary makes plays in these situations. Go for it. They throw the ball. So, so I am more in awe of the collapse, but but that does not mean I'm not in awe of the plays that were made down the stretch by UNC and the overall gumption that they showed. Yeah, it's sort of a tale of two seasons there. I mean, everything that NC State did like sort of came up right this year, and UNC yeah. couldn't have had anything more go wrong uh, in its season falling to six and six there. And and, and it, it completed a season where there were all these like interesting parallels, and I'm going to be a little uh, self-absorbed in this in a second, but... Uh, UNC did not win a single game on the road this year. NC State did not win. I mean, did not lose a single game at home. Um, I also had the collapse of UNC when they were at when they were at Pitt earlier this year when they were okay. on the two yard line and they have the they have the false start that knocks them back. They end up kicking a field goal, going to overtime, and losing it in overtime. Uh, and, and then and then uh, NC State has been undefeated in football and baseball with me on the call the past two seasons. <laughs> So I feel like there's just a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Some of it has 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 to do with the broadcast, which has absolutely nothing to do with the game. But I think it's interesting. I think they're going to start flying you out for those games. They're going to pay Seriously. for you to put you up in Seriously. a nice hotel and everything Doran's, like that. Doran basically said as much. And Elliot Haven was like, let's go. <laughs> well, the other uh, wild finish was the game I was covering. Virginia Tech beats UVA 29-24. Uh, an upset there. UVA was a seven-point favorite in that game, and I really didn't see how the Hokies were going to stop Brennan Armstrong in that offense. Uh, this was not as stunning of a finish as, as NC State UNC, but it was pretty wild. Still, uh, Hokies go up five uh, on a safety. They knock the ball back, and UVA recovers in the end zone. UVA tries an onside kick, and Tech recovers. And you go, okay, it's over. They're just going to run out the clock. But no, they run a fake reverse, and the quarterback gets spun around, and he hits his own guy, and he fumbles. UVA's ball and you're sitting here watching and go, they're going to win this game. There's no way Texas is going to stop them. They go straight down the field, get down to like the 13, uh, some questionable play calling there. They run into the, the line trying to work the clock down. I'm like, you're down by five points. You need to score a touchdown. Don't waste a play doing that. Throw an incompletion. And then third and seven from the, uh, where was it? It's I like the it nine was, yard line. Yeah, Nine yard lines. No, I think like, it was a 13. It was like third. and Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it was a nine. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, because they go out there, and here's the play that happens. Brennan Armstrong takes a snap, and they've got all these receiving weapons on the team. You know, six foot seven Jelani Woods and Dontavian Wicks is a first team All ACC, and Rashawn Henry, and all these weapons that you can throw the ball to with your, uh, you know, record breaking quarterback. And they have him roll a little bit to his right, spin around, and turn and chuck the ball across the field to offensive tackle Bobby Haskins, who is seven or eight yards behind the line of scrimmage catches the ball swarmed by Virginia Tech's defense, loses five yards. And then on fourth down, they throw an incompletion into the end zone to lose. That was the all-time head scratcher of head scratchers in terms of play call. When you saw that, what were you thinking when they call that play? Uh, It's one of the worst play calls I've ever seen in my life. And, And like Bronco came out and defended it after because he has to. Right. But there, it's it's inexcusable. Like you mentioned, all of the weapons you've got, you've got Brennan Armstrong, who is a threat with his legs, even though he was banged up in the game with his ankle. Like that dude's still gonna gut it out if he has to to get the necessary yardage to at least get you closer, or maybe in the end zone. And and you know, Keaton Thompson is a Swiss Army knife that you can line up anywhere. Jelani Woods, Billy Kemp is always open under five yards, under ten yards. Like he's always open. Wicks, Henry, you just have so many options and you throw a, a throwback. 
and even like I, I was trying to put myself in in the mind of, of Robert and I, the offensive coordinator, and Bronco Mendenhall, and they're obviously expecting man-to-man coverage. You're you're expecting the corner to be cleared out by the uh, by the by the receiver. I can't remember who the receiver was, but the corner was Dorian Strong. He was not. They were comboing the coverage on an outbreaking route. Strong's got him on an inbreaking route. Safety's got him. Safety takes him because he it's an it's an upfield release inside. Safety takes him. So Strong's basically sitting there like a cover two corner at that point, and he just breaks on it. But even if Strong had gone, even if the safety had had flowed with the rollout, which we'll get to the rollout in a moment. Amari Barno is to that side, like one of the most athletic linebacker or, or defensive ends who's really a linebacker in the league. Right. Bobby Haskins catches this ball on like the 17 yard line. There is a zero percent chance he outruns Amari Barno to the end zone. Like it's never going to happen. So so uh, for that reason, it was it was a terrible play call. The other thing. And Andy, you've watched probably a ton of Virginia this year, like I have. I have never seen this year, and, and I could be wrong, but I have not seen once this year Brendan Armstrong roll out to his right. Haven't seen it. Doesn't happen. Like they're a straight drop back team. You get the occasional rollout typically to his left. They may have done it a handful of times rolling out to his right this year. And that's something that as a player, if you're on the defensive side of the ball, you rep things all week, all week, all week, tendencies, you know, this, that. You're going over all these scenarios. Here's where they roll out. Here's how they roll out. Here's where they go to. And so when he starts to roll out to his right, for everybody on that Virginia Tech defense, they're thinking, something's up here. Like, right. this is weird. This is, he doesn't do that. This team doesn't do that. We even practice this. Like, there's just, like, all of these alarms that start to go off in your head, and they're not immediately thinking throwback. But it makes you just play a little more timid because it's not something that you typically see, and so for that reason, I think it was doomed from the start. I think it was a it was a doomed play call, and then it was doomed from the start. From after that, yeah, he sort of meandered to the right. It wasn't even like a rollout. It was just kind of yeah, like it was like a half go in there a little hey guys, bit. I'm like, going. Listen, I would have loved to have seen a thick six uh, more than oh anyone. And if yeah. you call that play and it works, like that's the most legendary play in the history of the rivalry, perhaps, or up there with it. But you know, call it in the second quarter, not when the game is on the line in or, this situation. Or, or closer to the end zone. Right. Like, if he catches it on the seven and you're doing that, okay. And also, if you're close to the end zone, Virginia Tech really, it's a lot tougher to do some of that combo stuff. Because if you run a quick slant, Strong's got to play that. He doesn't have to play a quick slant when you're on the nine-yard line. Like, the safety's got plenty of time. To come up and play it if you're on the three or the four yeah absolutely he has to play it because if the guy catches the ball the safety doesn't have time to get there so there's just so many factors there that like you were a little too far away he wasn't gonna outrun a barno it was sort of a weird rollout yeah it works against the scouts because they don't care like they don't care <laughs> but uh it was terrible man brutal well I've seen Pitt run that play before, and I've seen Pitt run that play successfully. So maybe we'll see that yeah. in the ACC championship yeah, game here, and it'll, it'll have a, a better outcome for the, the team that was running. So that. Brian O'Neill scored, and he actually scored from like 10 yards out. 10, yeah, yards out. I think that the one of the Piesman, I can't remember if he won yeah. it or not. On the, that. So the difference there is he's a left tackle, and Kenny Pickett's a right-handed quarterback. So you get a hard roll to the right, and it is much more convincing than like your left-handed quarterback sort of trotting awkwardly to the right. Well, I hope it happens. That would be that would make for a great ACC title game, and I want to see it happen. Hopefully, we have that. Roddy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Everybody, go follow him on Twitter at Roddy Jones twenty. Uh, he's been on the show twice this year. We really appreciate it, Roddy. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Andy. Always happy to be on. There was a big bit of coaching news this week at Virginia Tech, which hired Penn State defensive coordinator Brett Pry as its new head coach, replacing Justin Fuente. Pry was a GA at Virginia Tech from 1995 to 97. He's a defensive-minded guy who comes with a stamp of approval from Frank Beamer and Bud Foster. Seems like there's a lot of hokey DNA in this hire, and I'm, I'm looking at this, and I'm, I'm thinking this hire makes a lot of sense for the Hokies. To get to know a little bit more about this hire, we're joined by Audrey Snyder. She's our Penn State beat writer at The Athletic. Audrey, thank you for doing this. I'm curious, uh, what is Virginia Tech getting in Brent Pry? 
Yeah, Andy, uh, appreciate you having me on. Um, to me, this is an interesting one because like, I've covered Penn State for the last 10, 11 years. So that's the entirety of Brent Pride being here. And I mean, there were always the flirtations, the will he, won't he go, you know, for other jobs. But it was never about a job with this high of a profile. You know, it was always like you wondered, would he take some of these smaller gigs? Um, the thing is, Andy, you're getting a ball coach. Uh, I mean, it's he's got the very uh, southern accent, which is also kind of funny because he's from Altoona, Pennsylvania, but always would tell us that really he's kind of from all over the place because his dad was a, was a coach, Jim Pry, so he, Brent moved all around and, you know, kind of grinded his way up through the profession, which I think is the other thing. I mean, he's 51 years old. And his defenses at Penn State were always pretty good. I mean, they were exceptional this past year, um, but they were multiple. They were blitz heavy. And the thing here, of course, is, and, and you know this coming from a school that has its uh, share of defensive backs and likes to take pride in that, Penn State is linebacker U. Um, and Penn State was able to recruit some big-time linebackers, in part because of the profile of the school and it being linebacker U, but also a lot of that was pride. Um, the kids really liked him. The players really liked him. And you kind of look at some of the best recruits on Penn State's team, you know, on paper at least. Um, and it was guys like Micah Parsons and linebacker Brandon Smith from Louisa, Virginia. Um, you, you know, you look at a guy like their linebacking core right now, you've got two of their three starters are Virginia guys. And the third is, is a Maryland D.C. guy. So regionally, I think it's, it's a really good fit. Well, this is music to Hokies fans' ears, what you're saying here. A personable mm -hmm. guy who's a recruiter and uh, recruits Virginia, gets big-time uh, defensive players like that. Some of this stuff has been lacking at Virginia Tech the last couple of years. So uh, Virginia Tech fans are doing cartwheels hearing you say this stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, how surprised are you that he made this move? I mean, you wrote a column on The Athletic. You offered a bunch of insight about his relationship with J James Franklin. And this spans, uh, you know, it goes back to their time at Vanderbilt. It actually starts when Franklin was a quarterback uh, and Pry was a young assistant at East Stroudsburg. Uh, I mean, it seems to me like you almost thought Pry was a lifer with Franklin at this point. Are you surprised yeah. that he made this move and made this move now? A little bit uh, so, just because you're right. I mean, there were many times, like, we would always, seemingly once or twice a year, we'd ask Brent Pry, hey, are the head coaching aspirations still there? And he'd always kind of dance around it, and he'd be like, well, you know, maybe if it's the right situation. And um, in my column, I went back to an interview I had with Brent late last May for our State of the Program series, and we were just kind of shooting a breeze at, at this point, and... Um, you know, his future came up and he said, you know what, the, like he's kind of always been, which you have to be in this industry, selective about your jobs and, and your opportunities. But he's like, you know, what? the, the grass is pretty daggone green here, which is like probably the most Brent Pry phrase you're going to hear. You guys will hear a lot of that. Um, but I mean, he was right. And it's because of that relationship with Franklin and the fact that, you know, they were together since Vanderbilt. And it was really a point of pride for both Franklin and Pride, two Pennsylvania guys, when they got to Penn State, it was like, hey, we made it, you know? And when he got to Vanderbilt with James Franklin, it was like, hey, we arrived, you know? We're in the SEC. We did this thing together. So that, to me, at 51, you start to think of somebody being a lifer um, with Franklin, and, and you kind of look at the success, and Penn State was was a mess this year at 7-5, and five, but it had nothing to do with the defense. The defense was tremendous. And so kind of from the Penn State perspective, you're like, all right, your defense was your strength this year, which to me is why if ever Pry was going to go, it felt like it had to be now because the defense was this good. And then you look at the NFL and you see Odafe Owe and Micah Parsons, two guys competing for that defensive rookie of the year, two Penn State guys who Pry had a hand in. Um, certainly in recruiting Parsons was, was a huge part of that. So the stock is probably about as high as it's ever going to be. And I think you add in the craziness of this whole carousel. And all of a sudden you're talking about Brent Pry at Virginia Tech, which all the other job overtures were kind of for, for smaller jobs in the past. Yeah, I, I think Buffalo was that one of them mm -hmm. that, that came up in the past. Uh, I know, he, I think he played there, correct? Yes, yes uh, he at did. Buffalo. Yeah, it, it, in the way that you describe this relationship between Pry and Franklin, I almost think of Bud Foster and Frank Beamer. 
And now it's not exactly the same thing. Franklin is younger than Pry, which is sort of an interesting dynamic in this whole thing. And and Bud was a younger guy than Frank Beamer was on the coaching staff. But that you're describing the exact same situation that Bud Foster faced for so long, where we're like, are you going to take a head coaching job? Do you still want a head coaching job? And he'd always be very selective and didn't want to go into a situation where it was a, a huge rebuild or something like that. He was waiting for his right time, and it just never kind of came. Never happened. Uh, he ended up being a lifer, ended up being a legend at Virginia Tech, honestly. I mean, you wonder if he leaves early and goes to take a, a small-time job somewhere, is he, he's certainly not as highly regarded in Virginia Tech history like he, he, he is now. So uh, it's an interesting move for Pry. I'm, I'm curious, what's his personality like? Um, I, I haven't seen too many videos of him talking, and uh, I don't know if Penn State <laughs> locks down assistance quite like Virginia Tech. That is Tech true. Does. Yes, that is that is true. Uh, and honestly, Andy, that's kind of what I'm I'm curious to see when, you know, because this will be his first head coaching job. How does he operate in terms of like media access? In terms of him being the face of a program? And yeah, Penn State is certainly restrictive. Um, as I was combing through my notes yesterday. We last talked to Brent Pry September 30th. Um, the time before that, we talked to him at, at Media Day in July or August. August, it was early August. And then I had him at, in May for State of the Program. So really like three to four times we've talked to him in the last year. Um, that's just kind of Penn State's standard procedure. But being here as long as I have, you know, you cover these guys long enough, you get to know them. Uh, Pry was certainly one of their best personalities that they had as this staff kind of grew and evolved very forthright, which maybe as a as a head coach that changes, you know, maybe maybe the honesty level gets scaled back a bit. Um, I think the other thing, too, was he was never one to point the blame, which I think is really interesting. I think it's a, it's a good attribute. I mean, I remember last year the defense struggled and it was the COVID year and, and all of this and Parsons opts out. So they were, I mean, they were a mess. Um, a lot of that having to do with, with the weird season and losing your best player and those types of things. Um, but I thought it was really telling was toward the end of the year when we talked to Pry, he owned all of that. And he was like, you know what? I was expecting too much of players who didn't have spring ball, who had this fragmented camp. Um, it was a young defense. And he's like, I have to do a better job of that. Like he recognized the weaknesses and going into this year, their whole thing was, you know, sure. Sacks are important, but it's not the most indicative stat. If you can rush the passer, but maybe not get the sacks, um, you'll be successful. So they changed up some of what they wanted to do against some of these mobile quarterbacks. Um, and it worked. And you saw a defense that was really opportunistic this year that had a lot of takeaways. And you saw those players take on those bigger steps. And it was basically like, yeah, he owned up to last year and fixed it. And I think that's the, that's the, the important thing. Now, all that being said, how in the world does he put this offensive staff together? That, to me, is going to be the, the really interesting part of all this. Yeah, that's the, that's the big question mark with the Hokies, and it has been forever. I mean, they thought they solved the offensive side when they hire an offensive-minded guy like Justin Fuente, and it just did not work out here. Uh, and here they are six years later, kind of starting from scratch again, and I feel like they're, they're going back to the future a little bit. They're, they're going back to uh, their defensive-minded coach, and then they'll figure it out on offense. I'll be very curious to see who they hire on the offensive side. I think they're going to pony up the dough for somebody. Uh, at least that's what Whit Babcock has been saying is that they're going to do that. Uh, but with somebody like Pry, who's been an assistant coach for so long, you wonder what are those contacts like? Because he hasn't hired for a position like this uh, before right. uh, in his life. So I, I think that's a big question mark. Absolutely. And I know like one of the things here, and, and this really speaks to the Franklin Brent Pry relationship was, you know, it got to a point where when uh, Penn State had to hire a defensive line coach a couple of years ago, and Brent Pry is, you know, passing on recommendations to James Franklin. And one of those guys was John Scott Jr., who Pry actually had coached at Western Carolina years ago. And Franklin ends up taking the recommendation and they hired John Scott Jr. And so obviously you and I have, have talked about this with, with the way that his staff is coming together. Um, initially, that was one of the guys right away that John Scott Jr. at Penn State were thinking, all right, maybe that's a guy Pry takes with him just because there's that longstanding relationship. Um, but you look at it, it's like, all right, well, Virginia Tech's got a defensive line coach, so 
you probably pump the brakes on that. But yeah, it's going to be fascinating just because he's been in this industry so long. But you're right. I mean, making these hires and kind of becoming that face of a program, that to me is going to be interesting because here it was kind of, I mean, it's your typical DC role. I mean, you're, you're grinding around the clock, watching film, all those types of things. But he's learned from a very, very good CEO in James Franklin. And I'm just curious, especially the intro presser, Andy. I mean, I, you know, is he going to win the presser? Does it matter? I say it doesn't matter. But I'm just curious to see more of that personality just because it is his first head coaching job. It's a pretty low bar to win the press conference. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a head coach lose the press conference. I don't know what you'd have to do to lose the press conference. Other than there's there have been there some and, weird ones in the I NFL. Guess it's an Adam Gase thing where you're like yeah. staring around in all sorts of different directions. Maybe that's it. Uh, but you know, you just go up there and you, you spout some stuff about family and home, and you, 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 people are eating out of your hand uh, at that point. I mean, I know I remember Franklin's intro presser. It was so jarring because it was like he was selling all these things to a fan base that didn't need to be sold. And it was like, all right, man, you're trying too hard. This isn't Vanderbilt. Um, so, yeah, I am really curious about that. Um, but you guys are going to get a great Southern accent uh, from Prize. So that'll be that'll be nice for you. Entertaining. Well, Audrey, I, I appreciate the insight on this. I'll leave you with this one last question. Do you think we ever see Virginia Tech play Penn State? I mean, this Gosh. matchup got canceled because of COVID. Uh-huh. I mean, it was going to happen so. last year, and it, it got canceled. It, it, the game was going to be in Blacksburg. They did not play it because they weren't doing non-conference games. Then Virginia Tech's like, well, we're not going to go up to Happy Valley. Uh, in 2025, yeah. Uh, which stinks because I wanted to see this matchup in the worst way. I've never been to Penn State to cover a game. I really wanted to cover it there. Uh, do you think this ever happens? And would this matchup like facilitate this now or this coaching uh, pairing facilitate this possibly? You know, it certainly helps. And I think you look at future scheduling and a lot of it um, comes down to do these teams and these programs want to play um, regionally. This would be awesome. I know there are a lot of Penn State fans who were looking forward to the game last year in Blacksburg. Um, I've been to Blacksburg once or twice before, but not for a football game. Uh, so I thought like that would have been really cool. And, and like you said, I mean, Showing another fan base Beaver Stadium would be great. But I think the other thing that has to sort itself out here is with non-conference play and, like, what's the right number? And we saw it this year with Penn State playing Auburn. And they play Auburn again next year down there this time. Um, And James Franklin's been really vocal about looking at what the SEC does with with the non-con games. And, you know, is it fair if the Big Ten has nine uh, conference games, they should be playing, you know, three cupcakes. But then if you want one of these games, what do you do? Um, I'd love to see it happen. I just, I don't know if it makes sense in terms of trying to pad a resume, if the Big Ten's going to keep being insanely competitive, especially the Big Ten East that Penn State's in. Um, but yeah, I do think the other one, I, I can't, you, you jogged my memory, um, Virginia Tech opening up with Old Dominion. Ricky Ronnie and Brent Pry, very close, spent a lot of time together over the years. So that'll be a fun one for you, Andy. That'll be That'll be good. Yeah, back to the scene of the crime for Virginia Tech going down there. <laughs> the last time they played there, they lost uh, at ODU, and it was sort of the beginning of the end. And, and when you look back, there, the canary in the coal mine for, for the Justin Fuente. Full circle era. moment. Here you that's, come. That's right. Well, Audrey, I, I appreciate you coming on, uh, giving your insight about this. Everybody go follow her on Twitter at oddsnyder 4 A-U-D Snyder4. Uh, Audrey, thanks so much. You got it, Andy. Take care. All right, two quick things I want to hit on here at the end before we go. David Cutcliffe is out at Duke, a mutual agreement for separation between him and the school. I think everybody kind of saw this coming with the Blue Devils. They were 5-18 and in the last two years, 1-17 in, in ACC play. Uh, this is a team that has not finished better than 6th in the division since 2017, and this defense this year was just a train wreck. Uh, last in the FBS you, you look at that game against Louisville with Malik Cunningham running through them like they were playing Madden on the easy level. Like It, it was that bad uh, this year for the Blue Devils. But don't let this year and this finish cloud what was such an incredible run for Cutcliffe at Duke. He was 77-97 and 97 overall at Duke. And people are going to say, oh, what's the big deal about that? The big deal is that he won at Duke. He took over a dead football program and he made it competitive again. 
Uh, Duke won the division in 2013. This is something that nobody thought was ever possible for the Blue Devils. He won 27 games from 2013 to 15. In the decade before Cutcliffe arrived at Duke, the Blue Devils won 17 games in 10 years. Uh, so this has been an incredible run that he's had here, one that I don't think a lot of people thought would happen, uh, that Duke would actually be successful. Where do they turn now? I'm not so sure. Uh, there's a lot of names out there. Chris Vanini here at The Athletic had a list, included Oklahoma State defensive coordinator Jim Knowles, uh, Coastal Carolina's Jamie Chadwell. Feels like that would be a coup if Duke could get Jamie Chadwell to come there and bring that option offense to the ACC. Uh, East Carolina's Mike Houston, James Madison's Kurt Signetti, uh, I've seen Michigan offensive coordinator Josh Gaddis, an ACC guy, has been mentioned. Uh, Texas A&M defensive coordinator Mike Elko, another one with ACC ties there. Not really sure what direction they go to. Uh, this is a, a difficult place to win. Uh, and I, I, Cutcliffe did it, but I don't know if necessarily, necessarily if there's a blueprint there that you go, oh, you just follow this and you win at Duke. So this is a tough job with a lot of handicaps there, but David Cutcliffe showed that winning there was possible, and I think that's a very big deal. Lastly here, the ACC Network is finally on Xfinity Comcast. Celebrate, everybody. It's here two days after the end of the regular football, se football regular season. I will rag on the timing of this because it is so comical. Living in Virginia, uh, fans of Virginia Tech and Virginia complain all year about how they could not watch the, uh, the Hokies and the Cavaliers on the ACC network because it, Comcast is a major provider within the state here and they're probably both teams had you know, three or four games whatever it was on the ACC network and they could not watch it and here they finally get it and it's two days after the regular season ends uh, that's kind of funny but this is great news for the league they are at full distribution uh, cable distribution in the third year of the ACC network. This is 20 million subscribers added through Xfinity Comcast. ESPN says it will now be available on 90 million homes uh, within the ACC footprint here. The contracts aren't public on this thing, but David Teal, uh, my friend over at the Richmond Times-Dispatch, did some math on this, and he estimates the Comcast value to the league is in the $200 million range. Now, they split that down the middle between the ACC and ESPN, uh, and then they so that's a hundred million dollars. They further divide that up among the ACC schools, and the Notre Dame gets a share. I believe the ACC itself gets a share in this whole thing. So you're talking about six million dollars extra per school per year. Uh, that's not going to get the ACC up by the Big Ten and the SEC in terms of revenue, but that is a nice little addition to have here. The ACC networks. Tele or ACC's television contract is still going to be trailing uh, those big dogs. Don't don't get me wrong here. It's still going to be quite a gap between the haves and the have-nots. But $6 million extra a year will be very helpful for a lot of these athletic departments uh, and should go a long way in helping them. That's going to do it for this show. That's another one in the books. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Please go rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, subscribe to The Athletic. We've always got great deals going on. You can listen to this podcast ad-free. Go to theathletic.com slash ACCpod. Get our best deal that we have going right now. Uh, please go follow me on Twitter. I'm at AndyBitterVT. Uh, I'll be watching the ACC title game this weekend and hopefully enjoying a fireworks show like everybody else. We'll be back again next week to talk about that, wrap up the bowl season, and a little bit more. We'll talk to you then.